all of y'all who were seated elsewhere in the, in the room today, you don't get the privilege I did to be seated down the road from Mitch and Tara. And um, to see that man give his heart to God in song. Um, Mitch, I think that that last song was your song. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. Wonderful to just worship God with you as you worshiped him for that deep abiding faithfulness that he has shown to you and your family uh, this summer and these last several weeks especially. So I wish all of you could have experienced that by being seated down the row from him. Uh, it was my pleasure. Um, most of you have in your hands, if we had enough copies, a, a copy of the text that I uh, I just wanted to observe it, and after observing it, I feel like carefully enough, it seemed like the, the text will almost teach itself. Uh, I'm going to try and help it. <laughs> uh, the Lord Jesus gave this sermon first, so who on earth would want to try and preach the sermon after him or about his sermon? Nevertheless, I'm going to attempt that today, uh, this section of his Sermon on the Mount. Introduce it uh, this way. Um, we live in a very radically broken, divided, ruptured world. Divided society. Um, broken families, um, parents and kids, mate, mates that don't get along, um, political parties in division, Churches broken over such things as masks and worship style and any number of things. We're just, we're at each other. It's, it's a shame. Uh, and yet very, very true and very evident wherever we look. And the Lord Jesus is going to address that, the, the source of that division uh, and what we can do about it. Um, not, the whole, not the whole solution addressed here this morning, but here's what I'd like you to do as we enter into this text, and then we'll do it. Um, I'd like you to consider, is there someone with whom I am at odds? Is there someone in whom, with whom I am in relationship that I know I have offended? It's not their fault, it's my fault. I know I've done them wrong in some way or another. Is there someone, if you're brave enough to write it down, maybe in code, um, so people looking around don't know who you're referring to, so your mate doesn't know you're writing his or her name. Um, uh, if, if you want, write it down. But at least on the computer screen of your brain, have it right up there. Because Jesus wants to address that for each one of us personally. Now, let's pray together as we look at the face of Jesus while he looks at our hearts uh, through this text. Our Lord Jesus, we, we say what we just sang, and we thank you that all our lives you've proven yourself faithful and so, so very good when we've been so so very bad. We thank you that you loved 
us, that you died on the cross for us, that you rose for us, and that you offer your life to us if we will just believe. And then that you do the miracle of living your life through us by faith as we renew that faith every day. Father, by your Holy Spirit, as we look into the word, your word, the word you gave us, we ask you, speak to us now and help us respond by the power of grace and your Holy Spirit living within us, the life of Jesus lived out through such as we are. <laughs> That's a miracle, and we thank you for the possibility and the reality that exists. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, we're in a particular text, but we're going to have to like, you know how you do on TV where you roll backwards. We need to roll backwards through the text and just kind of speed through some of the previous episode and then arrive at this point and then press pause and then start it in a slower motion. Jesus has been preaching the Sermon on the Hill. And as he's done that, he started out with these words of blessing. The King of Heaven announcing the norms of the Kingdom of Heaven to the people here on earth. And as he did that, as he gave those beatitudes, those blessed statements, the statements of people who are highly favored and most to be envied and receiving the great delight that only God can give, um, he ended them up where we were last week. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Um, and we, we intent, entertain the very sober reality that those who follow the King of Heaven will endure resistance on earth question might come up, well, if that's the case, then shouldn't we just avoid those people who, who might persecute us? Shouldn't we just like evade and avoid that possibility? And Jesus says, no, no, you are the light. You're the salt of the earth. Salt doesn't do any good to meat unless it's in contact with it. So you've got to be in the world that may persecute you. And you're the light of the earth. In other words, he's unrestrictive about this promise. He's speaking you, plural, you are the light of the earth. Light has to encounter darkness to drive it away. Salt has to be in contact with the meat to preserve. We are there, we're here to be preservative and to put light in an increasingly darkening world, to, and to put salt and preservative in an increasingly deteriorating world. We've got to stay in contact. And oddly enough, the same world that persecutes us will, in fact, some of them will notice our deeds of light, our points of light, our actions of Jesus' goodness, and will actually give glory to God the Father in heaven. There's going to be a mixed reaction, and he doesn't bother giving us percentages. You get the impression that the persecution is going to be a higher percentage. Those who observe and give glory to God will be a lower percentage. But we're, we're going to have that impact in both directions in, in life. It's the way it is in the world. And then he says, now, don't start thinking that the way I've announced these Beatitudes is like totally contrary to human reasoning. Don't think that I'm tossing out the Old Testament law. No, in fact, I'm here to fulfill it. All of those laws pointed toward me and my righteous life and my teaching, which will tell us how to embody the very deeper things that those laws pointed toward. So don't think that I've come to overthrow the law. I've come that, to fulfill what they pointed toward, to fill it out, to deepen it, to show how I am the embodiment of Jesus' righteousness in this kingdom 
of heaven. Don't think that. In fact, he ends with this rather sober statement. Um, Unless your righteousness goes beyond or exceeds the righteousness of the experts and the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If we haven't been nailed by the Beatitudes already, then this one gets us, right? Okay, unless we're more righteous than those dudes, those squeaky clean, very observant, righteous uh, experts in the law and the Pharisees, we're not getting in. The whole Sermon on the Mount, in many respects, is to push us towards this sense of helplessness. We could sing to God, all my life, I've been unfaithful. <laughs> all my life, I've been so, so bad. I'm always in need of your mercy. I needed you to call my name so I could walk out of that grave because I was stuck in there. So Jesus nails everyone in the audience. Look, unless your righteousness exceeds those, then you're not getting into heaven. He pushes us toward dependent faith in the one who is ultimately righteous. And then, having given that summary statement, he provides us six cases in point through the rest of chapter 5. <laughs> And I think we'll at least go to the end of chapter 5 where he says this. If he didn't nail us already, he's going to double nail us now. So then, verse 48 of chapter 5. So then, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can I see a show of hands? Anybody there yet? Okay. So we're right where Jesus wants us. <laughs> we need his righteousness imputed to us and we need our sin placed upon him so they can be justly punished and we can receive God's forgiveness and Jesus' righteousness that we don't deserve. The rest of this chapter is going to detail, all right, you want to see how Jesus' righteousness lived out in human relationships looks like? Follow me. Chapter 5, when we get to verse 21. Isn't it interesting? Everything up till now in the sermon has been Jesus' introduction. Now, the first thing Jesus is going to talk about is murder. Huh? That's the first thing. This is not one of those designed to win friends and influence people kind of messages. He says, let's get right to the point funny thing. So he says, you have heard, you've got this printed out for you. I've just colored it and observed it just, in fact, before we even read that verse, let's just fly over the text a little bit and look at some of the broader geographical features. You notice the things all marked in gray? <laughs> the gray, grayer uh, parts are judgment, liable to judgment, liable to the council, liable to the fires of hell. And then down at the bottom, your accuser, the court, your accuser, the judge, the judge, the guard, the prison, and the last penny. In other words, this whole passage is couched in the terms of, of judgment and guilt or innocence. Guilt, mainly. Um, furthermore, there is this contrast between murder, which I'm going to call homicide, and harmony, which the text is going to refer to uh, in reconciliation. Um, and the first part is going to emphasize that, well, let's just go at verse 1. You've heard that it was said to those of old, and it could also be interpreted by those of old. In other words, those who have read the law and then interpreted it for the common people who didn't have the scrolls in their, in their houses, and some of them who did not even read, but the scribes of the law would then say to them, okay, this is what says in the Old Testament, and here's our take on it. 
And Jesus, throughout these six illustrations he's going to give, we're covering only the first, is going to say, you have heard, but I say. Six times. You have heard, but I say. This is how they interpret it. This is what it means, according to the king. And so he lays his authority alongside that of the scribes and Pharisees and the traditional rabbis, and he says, this is how it really is. That's what you've heard. This is how it really is. So what have they heard? You have heard that it was said to or by those of old, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not. We can talk. We're friends, all right? Yeah. I know you don't know me that well, but we're friends, whether you like it or not. Thou shalt not, in the old set, thou shalt not kill, as we say in, in the old King James. And it's not just killing in war or just taken of, by authorities for those who are receiving the death penalty, which is described in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not murder, take life in a wanton way. And you also heard this saying, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, look at me, folks. Don't you all just want to say, not amen, but because I'm not packing heat. If nobody's dead that I've left behind in my trail, I nailed that one. I'm good. Sixth commandment, give me a pin. I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus wants the audience on the hill to feel like, okay, man, we're sitting pretty now. This is good. But, and that's how he starts the next sentence, <laughs> verse 22, but I say to you, and everybody in the crowd suddenly starts squirming, oh, wait a minute, come on, come on, I thought we had this. But I say to you, notice those words that I highlighted in yellow, everyone, whoever, whoever, in other words, I'm talking to you. <laughs> everybody out there, listen up, this is for you. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. New American Standard instead of liable says guilty. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council or guilty before the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Some have tried to figure out, is Jesus describing gradations of guilt? and gradations of punishment, and no. In fact, when he gets to the bottom one, he makes it clear. Whoever's guilty of any of these is liable before God and be banished to hell. So now, this calls for a little bit of introspection. It's like, okay, so what is, what's Jesus? So furthermore, he's talking about human relationships, your brother. He's not confining it to family relationships. In other words, to your fellow neighbor, to the people around you, whoever has been angry with his brother, with his neighbor, with a coworker, with a fellow student, with a person on the road, uh, with the, someone on the phone who just seems not to get what your problem is, to, with, with uh, even the recording. <laughs> Can you have been ever angry at a recording? Yes, wait six minutes. Your wait time is now 17 minutes. Whoever is angry, what Jesus said, it's not just a matter of drawing blood. It goes way deeper than that. Because anger is the thing that leads to murder. It's the disdain, the contempt, the devaluing of human life itself that leads to such hostile actions. But he said it begins in the heart. This is homicide of the heart. 
And he says, whichever one of you has felt this angry, hostile contempt in your heart with your brother, guilty, enter your plea, guilty. And whoever insults his brother, the word in the original, whoever says raka, which that doesn't mean anything to any of us. Uh, and then the other one, the, the word in the final word, whoever says you fool is the word from which we get our word moron. Um, these are not just words of, these are words of deep contempt and insult. And it's very difficult for people who are much smarter than I in the original languages to find modern day equivalents for these two words, uh, raka and moron. We think we've got that down, moron. It sounds pretty good to us. We can use that one. But um, basically, it's the idea of saying, first of all, raka is you're empty headed. You nitwit. You're, you're you're blockhead. You're, it's just to treat somebody with utter contempt, insulting essentially their intelligence. The next one, you fool, especially when you read about fool in the book of Proverbs. It's not just a, a matter of intellectual stupidity. It's a matter of rebellion against God's ways and God's word. So I read one... Uh, quote from John Stott, who was actually quoting A.B. Bruce, who said, Raka expresses contempt for a man's head or intellect. In other words, you stupid. And then moron, express, either fool or moron, expresses contempt for his heart and his character. You evil scoundrel. Okay, now we're a little uncomfortable, aren't we? Thou shalt not murder felt us pretty safe. All right, let me, let me confess. My wife and I have been, in the kindness of God, spared from having COVID so far these 18 months and nearly two years, it seems. Um, but it just, because she has cancer of the bone marrow, it occurred to us, you know, we've got friends that are getting it. It just seems this time around, it's coming closer to home. We ought to call our, our, our GP, our general practitioner doctor, and find out what does he do if we should start coming down with symptoms, what's the protocol? And so I, being the head of the household, you know, and I'm going to call and uh, make contact, and his nurse answers, and I explained with the preamble, you know, we've been lucky we don't have COVID, we've both been uh, vaccinated, um, and we are just wondering what we should do if we start to show symptoms, and what does our doctor do in that case? And she kind of says, what? And do you know what this preacher said? I said, you've heard of COVID, right? <laughs> yes, I said that. And you all laughed at me. Because you've never done anything like that, have you? Not with your mate. Not with somebody who cut you off on the highway. I basically called her stupid without using the word because we taught our boys never say stupid. Our boys like to pray that. And please help me not to say stupid. And, and I think that was their fun way to be able to say the word which they've been taught not to say. I did that. And you ought to feel a little uncomfortable yourself because sometimes we do that in the closest relationships we have. 
because people we live closest to can get under our skin the most easily. And we can respond with sarcasm or sometimes just raw anger. And we can say words to those we're supposed to be loving to. And it cuts to the heart. And Jesus says, that is like murder. And those who are guilty of murder deserve the punishment of hell. And now we don't say, we say, whoa, baby, that's me. Everybody on the hill says, man, this nice guy who's doing all this healings and, and just showing such kindness, he's, he's going after our hearts right here, right now. This does not feel good. We're all guilty of murder, according to Jesus. So what do we do about that? Let me, let me read one other quote. Um, Such angry, hostile insults are very ugly symptoms of our hostile hearts and our hearts desire to be rid of someone whom we'd rather not have be in our way. In our thoughts, our tone of voice, our looks, our words, our attitudes, it is as if we were saying, listen to this, I wish you were dead. No, we don't actually come out and say the words, but the words may be dangerously close to forming on the tip of our tongue. So the person who cut you off in traffic, you may not say it because your kids are in the car with you, but you think it. When the coach of your beloved baseball team of the home city, I won't name them, uh, pulls a pitcher and the next guy gives up a home run, what do you say about that coach? When the cornerback of your favorite college team gives up a long touchdown for a game, for a game winner for the opponents, what do you say about him? When your mate says something that you evaluate is, let's just call it, not very well thought through. How do you respond, knee jerk? Jesus says, that's the evil of the human heart. And we all have it, whoever, whoever, whoever. He's got us covered like a blanket. So, <laughs> I like what he does here. He says, so, okay, since we've covered that, since I have you all where I want you, you all recognize your guilt. So, and he's going to give us two illustrations, one in the temple and the other considering a court in the background, first in the temple. So, and I, I just want to point out how this text is laid out to show you how Jesus makes the point. It's, as you see the phrases, so if you're altering your gift, First phrase. Third phrase, leave your gift. Fifth phrase, come back and offer your gift. In other words, we're talking about religious ceremony being, let's call it, in church. So you're doing your donations, or in, the old, in, the, in his time and day, you're offering your gift in the temple. You're giving a sacrifice to show your love for God. That's the surrounding atmosphere. So if you're offering your gift at the very altar, in other words, it's about to be taken by the priest to be burned in, in loving sacrifice to God. 
And second phrase, and there remember your brother. Notice how brother couches each side of the central phrase. There remember that your brother first be reconciled to your brother. So he's saying, okay, gift, gift, gift in connection with those you're in relationship to, your brother. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Notice he does not say, and there you remember you got something against your brother. <laughs> no. Your brother has something rightfully against you. In other words, you remember that you've offended him or her or them with your words, with your hostile tone of voice, with your glaring look that said more than words could even say, with your attitude, maybe your body language. But you know they got the offense and they felt it. Your bad behavior has caused someone else to have a, a record, an accusation, an offense that you caused. You're there offering your gift at the altar, and you remember, man. I can't stay here. So what do you do? Central phrase. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Man, it would be cool to see this in churches. Some churches pass the plate. How cool it would be to see people, the plate gets at their row, and they say, and they get up, and they walk out, and they make a phone call. Because there, they remembered, I've offended my sister, my brother, my neighbor, my classmate, my coworker. People start to make things right. <laughs> this is one time when Jesus says, how neat it would be to empty out the temple. <laughs> how cool it would be to empty out the church and watch harmony start to take place. Leave your gift there at the altar and go. What is Jesus saying? Yes, we're all guilty of this hostile, angry way of treating people. We're all guilty. So more important than religious ritual, more important than going through the motions of your devotion to God, more important than that is being right with the people you've wronged. It's priority. And then the next word says it. First, before anything else, first, go and be reconciled. I'm going to interrupt um, next week my plan for working our way through some sections of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to talk about this because I fear that most of us have not been trained very well in that. You know, my training was on the playground in, in, in school. You know, I and some other guy didn't get along. We wanted to either have a fist fight or you're, we're, you know, we're at each other. And our teacher gave us lesson number one, which unfortunately is like lesson last in how to reconcile. And the teacher says, Shake hands and say you're sorry. And with all the heartfelt emotion, I can listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Now go play. And that's about what we get in this culture. Uh, so I'd like to offer, I'm going to take a, a step outside of working our way through the Sermon on the Mount and just offer a sermon from Brian, okay? Um, you can take that with all the grains of salt you wish. 
But I want to offer it. So how do you reconcile? How do you uh, bury the hatchet? And uh, we'll talk about that next week. Because there's a lot here when he says, first, go and be reconciled to your brother. And then, and then, next phrase, and then come and offer your gift. God from in heaven is saying, you know, why the delay in this gift thing? Come on, get the, get the sacrifice going here. Or why, you know, just be, keep on coming to church and doing your thing. I, I like this. No. He's saying, you know, I'm more pleased if you're not there, but out there with him on the phone or in person or over lunch or knocking on his or her door to express your repentance and asking forgiveness. That, that's, what would, that's what's cool to me. That's what God says. This is the king of heaven saying the kind of worship he likes. He likes worship among, rec among reconciled believers. And he detests worship when people are separate in their hearts and wounded from each other and don't speak about it to each other. Get it out in the open. Reconcile. And he gives us another example which underlines, again, this urgent necessity to make things right. Verse 26, I'm sorry, 25. Come to terms quickly. I put that in green also because it's, it's the words of urgency. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And then another one of those sayings that's throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Truly, I say to you, in other words, bank on this. This is authoritatively from the king of heaven. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he's envisioning civil court, which was an allowable, common thing in the lifestyle of Jesus' day. Citizens could take someone, I think particularly he says, since he says paid the last cent, he's talking about a debt. Okay, you had a debt, you had agreed upon date by which you would pay the debt. You don't pay the debt. So the person to whom you owe the debt can call you, can hang, you know, hold you, take you in to court and say, look, this was the agreement. You might have something written down. Uh, this is the agreement. He's not paid up. And the judge says, man, you've you got to go to debtor's prison. It, you know, like much of our system of justice <laughs> doesn't make sense. So how do you get a, someone in prison to pay off a debt where they don't have a job in prison, where they're making no income? It's up to the friends and relatives and kind-hearted people who say, okay, we'll sacrifice, we'll work extra hard, we'll pay off the debt so you can get out. But Jesus isn't saying, okay, God's going to throw you into hell because you didn't make right with your, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, your family member. He's saying, look, in human terms, if you don't make things right, then deep-seated lack of forgiveness and bitterness and resentment and long-lasting hostility is created between the two of you or maybe your families and many are defiled by this kind of bitterness and it hurts and it's like dead people walking and particularly if it's your Christian brother you're in the same church you're maybe in rows near to one another but your hearts are totally distant from each other he says look Come to terms quickly. Be urgent about it. <laughs> there was an apostle to whom this preacher, Jesus, appeared in person. 
even after he'd risen from the dead, who wrote, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Words of the apostle Paul. Be quick about it. He also said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let a hostility or an offense fester and then become infected and then become fatal, but settle it quickly. Friends, Jesus is urgent about it. It's the first thing he says when he gets to the, the meat of his message, the Sermon on the Mount. And he states it to us in very stark and dangerous terms. You'll be guilty of hellfire or you'll be thrown in until you pay the last cent. It's not saying relational offenses between Christians caused those Christians to go to hell. He's saying, look, be urgent about settling them. There is judgment coming, yes. Those who have put their faith in Jesus will live with him forever. But there is a judgment coming. Settle these things. I think any of us who've been listening to Jesus up to this point in the sermon have quit trying to squirm out from under the charge he's laid before us. I hope you're there with me. I hope you're there saying, guilty as charged. So what do we do about it? Okay, look at me. Suppose we're on death row. It's a pretty big prison. <laughs> and our lawyer comes to us and says, and we're guilty, not just one, but like we're serial killers. And I don't mean the stuff in the boxes for breakfast. We, we, we've committed a lot of them, and there's there's a trail. And our lawyer comes to us and says, I got an idea. It's kind of a radical one, but I think we can spring you if we pull this off. Okay, I'm all ears. What is it? He said, suppose we get all the bodies and put them back to life again. And if they're living, you're not guilty anymore. That's what Jesus says we can do. <laughs> we can go to a dead relationship that we killed and we can reconcile with that brother or sister or friend or neighbor or coworker or boss or classmate. And we can make live again a relationship that died at our fault if we reconcile. Jesus, our heavenly attorney says, I can spring you. Let's give this a shot. I hope you're motivated by that. In fact, Jesus, our heavenly attorney, said, we got a bigger problem than the people you've left dead behind you. And that is, we got a problem with him. And we're the dead ones. We're dead in sins, and there's no way we're getting out unless, unless we put our faith in the one who died in our place, who took our penalty for us, for all those nasty words and nasty thoughts and evil deeds and more. 
that we've committed. He put them all, Jesus, God put them all on his son, Jesus. And then he executed his wrathful sentence that we deserve to pay on his own son. And these, Jesus says, see there? It's done. I've paid it. Now, if you will put your trust in me, I will give to you the Father's forgiveness and my life forever and forever and ever. <laughs> and Mark Wells, he can call our name and we can run out of that grave because of Jesus. And the life of Jesus lived through us can allow us then to go to relationships we have wounded and insulted and killed and hurt, and we can revive them and reconcile them if we'll take Jesus' words to heart. And we can go from hostility and homicide to harmony and beauty. I'll just read the closing box that I know all of you can read, but that's, these are my closing thoughts. The sanctity of human life includes the sacredness of human relationships. The outlawing of murder more fully intends the banding of malicious anger and interpersonal wounding, and it forcefully commands the urgent, beautiful pursuit of reconciliation and love in human friendships. God despises homicide and hatred. He absolutely delights in harmony. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, thank you that you can take us from woundedness to wholeness if we follow the prompting of your spirit and allow Jesus to live his life through us. Take our broken, wounded, divided world and turn it upside down for the glory of Jesus and let us do our part in our little worlds and the relationships we maintain and extend for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I'd like you to stand and let's sing a song that Roland sang for us, doing it together. Our sins, there are many. His mercy, whew, totally more. <laughs> Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We are not dismissed. We are deployed. Go live the grace of Jesus in this world. <laughs>